You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 22nd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up on today's programme, Israel and Hamas are hours away from a four-day truce, which will see hostages and prisoners exchanged. But will it hasten the end of the conflict? Blast off in North Korea. Has Pyongyang defied international sanctions to launch its first surveillance satellite? From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. And 60 years on from the assassination that shocked the world, we visit the JFK Presidential Library and Museum to discuss the legacy of Camelot. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Vincent McAvinney. Israel and Hamas have agreed a deal to pause the fighting in Gaza for four days in exchange for the release of 50 hostages captured in the 7th of October attack. Hamas says 150 Palestinian women and teenagers will be released under the agreed terms. Israel says for every 10 further hostages released, they will pause the fighting for another day. But Israel's government insists that this isn't the end of the war, reiterating its commitment to, quote, complete the elimination of Hamas. Journalist Hannah McCarthy has been covering the war from Jerusalem since it began. Hannah, thank you for joining us. This truce will start at some point in the next 24 hours. Has there been much fighting this morning? Well, Gaza is still under uh, bombardment. But again, you know, we assume that there is some agreement um, to allow the hostages, you know, to get to the border areas safely. Uh, we've got an update from Hamas, um, from uh, Musa Abu Marzouk, who said that the temporary uh, pause should start about 10 a.m. Uh, Israel time tomorrow. Uh, so again, you know, it seems like you know this deal is moving forward, and you know, the start of the truce, you know, should happen by tomorrow morning, uh, and we should see the first of the hostages leaving Gaza by then. Uh, as you said, it's you know expected to be Israelis or Israelis with dual nationals. Uh, the 50 would not include all the women and children that uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are believed to have taken, uh, but it would uh, include most of them. Uh, and there's kind of a mechanism that if they can find further women and children um, after that four day ceasefire, they can extend the ceasefire uh, by kind of one day for every 10 uh, hostages that they provide. And how will the exchange of hostages and prisoners actually work on the ground? We don't have tons of detail on that, but um, the International Red Cross uh, are are usually involved in the hostage exchange. They're seen as a kind of neutral interlocutor. Uh, They're supposed to, under international law, to have been allowed access to the hostages uh, already that Hamas control, uh, but they haven't been allowed access you know, to provide them with um, medication and to check the condition they're in. Uh, but part of this deal, we understand, is that uh, while Hamas will not release uh, all of the hostages, uh, the International Red Cross will be allowed to have access uh, to the hostages to check if they need medication, if they're getting adequate food and water. 
And some of these hostages will have been in tunnels for weeks now. They'll have been experiencing the heavy bombardment. They might not have had much in the way of food or, or fresh water. What's been the reaction from their families to news that at least 50 of them now will be coming home? I think it's mixed because obviously, you know, many people uh, have relatives who are soldiers or men, um, you know, who they don't expect to be included in this group. Uh, And obviously, even for a healthy person being, you know, in an underground tunnel that is under bombardment uh, for six weeks uh, is going to be uh, taxing on your health. But we know that um, several of the people uh, included in this group have, you know, underlying conditions. They require medication for heart problems. Uh, There's children with allergies. Uh, There was one uh, nine month, uh, one, one woman who was nine months pregnant. When she was taken, we don't have any update on uh, what happened uh, to her baby, which we assume uh, has been born in the last uh, six weeks. But, you know, we don't know. Um, You know, there's one I went to a rally in uh, Jerusalem where one mother spoke about how the last video she has of her son is, you know, after he had his hand blown off. We don't know what, you know, medical attention they've been receiving Uh, And again, you know, one of the issues with the negotiations over the last six weeks is that uh, Hamas wasn't providing a full list of identified hostages. Uh, So, you know, there is going to be a kind of messy kind of few days for Hamas while they try and locate hostages that are in uh, various underground locations where there's not, you know, good communication networks. And why do you think this deal has been struck now? And what's the reaction been like from ordinary Palestinians and Israelis? Well, look, the reality is that this deal is not dissimilar to the deal that was on the table a month ago. Uh, I think, you know, the Israeli uh, government has, is, you know, it's now trying to say, you know, it got a better deal after the ground invasion that has caused, you know, widespread destruction um, and, you know, potentially put you know several of the hostages his lives at risk and uh, so it's not dissimilar to the deal that was already on the cards uh, the main difference is a month ago there was a possibility of a clearer military victory uh, i guess for israel uh, they haven't really had a conclusive military victory over hamas at the moment while at the same time there has been mounting international pressure uh, that there needs to be some sort of you know deal to kind of progress uh, this conflict closer towards a negotiated resolution. Uh, the U.S. has been heavily involved in this hostage release deal. You know, uh, President Joe Biden has kind of taken a personal interest in this. He's, you know, he met uh, and spoke with uh, relatives of the hostages before Netanyahu did, who has been widely criticised for, you know, not attending funerals of victims of the 7th of October, for being reluctant to meet with the hostages. Uh, There was a genuine general view that the Israeli government was willing to prioritise annihilating Hamas over the hostages. Uh, So, I mean, I think there's, you know, relief for the relatives uh, whose, um, whose family members are likely Uh, to be returned in this first group. But, you know, I think there's also a lot of fear among the other relatives uh, about, you know, how much more intense this military operation could become after the end of this temporary pause. Obviously, there's a lot of unhappiness uh, with Netanyahu on his handling, not just the security before the attack, but his response, particularly with the hostages afterwards. What's been the impact, though, on the coalition that he struck with far right parties? And is there any chance, do you think, this could lead now to a more prolonged ceasefire? 
Within his government, Netanyahu, in order to form a viable government, was forced to do a deal with extreme right wing and extreme religious groups, including Itamar Ben-Gavir, whose party was the only party to vote against the hostage deal this morning. He said that it was going to give Hamas time to regroup, that we shouldn't be prioritising certain hostages over the other. And he also said that actually once Hamas hands, hands over children and women, there's going to be less international uh, pressure on Hamas, uh, that it's you know easier for them to kind of you know continue to fight if they're not holding women and children. Netanyahu still see his rhetoric and a lot of his language still seems to be focused on the right wing support that he needs, the language he's using. He's saying that this ceasefire or temporary pause is not going to stop a reigniting of the fighting after the hostages have been handed over. And a lot of the rhetoric we've seen is in you know complete contradiction to what the US has been saying. You know, Netanyahu has said Israel expe- expects to be in Gaza with a security presence for the long term. The US has come out, you know, and expressly said, you know, this is the words of you know, uh, US Secretary Anthony Blinken that you know there will be no long term occupation. The size of the Gaza Strip uh, is not going to be reduced, and there will not be mass displacement of Palestinians to Egypt. Hannah, thank you. That was Hannah McCarthy. Now here's Isabella Jewell with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Vincent. The United States is considering whether to return the Iran-backed Houthis to its list of terrorist organisations after the military group hijacked a ship over the weekend. The group targeted the Israeli-owned Galaxy Leader in response to Israel's war with Hamas. A Washington spokesperson called the seizure a flagrant violation of international law. Australia has unveiled a major new plan to improve the country's defences against cyber attacks. The measures include boosting funding for cyber law enforcement and introducing mandatory reporting of ransomware attacks. Reports of cybercrime in Australia rose nearly a quarter in the year to June. Polls are open in the Netherlands, where voters will elect their first new Prime Minister in 13 years. The latest polling shows growing support for the country's far-right Party for Freedom. The vote was called after Mark Rutte's government collapsed in a row over migration. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Vincent. Thanks, Isabella. Now, whilst South Korea's president has been on a state visit here in the UK with K-pop stars Blackpink attending a state banquet at Buckingham Palace last night, with King Charles even talking about his lack of Gangnam style, at home there was troubling news from the north. Pyongyang has successfully launched a surveillance satellite into space for the first time, according to state media. Japan, the US and South Korea have been unable to confirm yet if the satellite's payload had entered orbit. But if so, then North Korea's presence in space would add to military tensions on the peninsula and highlight the ineffectiveness of international sanctions. James Fretwell, an analyst for NK News, joins us now from Seoul. James, thank you. Uh, North Korea has failed to do this several times. How have they managed this now? Has there been some help from Russia? Um, That's a great question. We don't know yet. There's no clear um, evidence that that has uh, happened. But of course, people are going to be suspecting that because when North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, he visited uh, Russia for a few days in September and met with President Vladimir Putin. And uh, Putin said that he would um, help North Korea launch satellites, uh, which would be um, uh, potentially a violation of UN 
sanctions. North Korea this year did try to launch a military satellite in May, uh, in, in May and August. Uh, it failed both times. Obviously, Russia is, uh, has a much more advanced space program. And if it wanted to help North Korea um, overcome technical obstacles, then it would definitely be uh, a big help to Kim Jong-un. So maybe its success this time, North Korea's success this time, is, is due to a little bit of Russian help. Um, but, you know, the, the amount that you can do in, in two months, um, you know, that was it was only two months ago that Putin offered to help Kim Jong-un with the satellite program. There's only so much you can do within within two months. So we shouldn't doubt North Korea's own capabilities to push forward with with um, and overcome technological barriers. I mean, remember, uh, you know, 10 years ago, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, it would have seemed ridiculous that North Korea would ever be able to develop a, a missile that could hit the continental United States, perhaps, but it's managed to do that. So the idea that it's developed a, a satellite on its own, you know, not beyond the realms of possibilities. And what strategic advantages do they now gain from this and what countermeasures might be needed? Well, uh, an operational North Korean uh, military uh, recon satellite, um, it would allow it to more effectively monitor, target and assess damage from strikes on US and South Korean forces um, on the peninsula. So it is definitely um, going to be a big help for the North Korean military. Um, South Korea actually confirmed a couple of hours ago that um, it does seem that the North Korean satellite has entered orbit and North Korean state media um, worryingly for the US, it claimed that Kim Jong-un just a couple of hours after the after the satellite launched, um, that he was shown images from that satellite um, of US military bases in the uh, island territory of Guam. It's basically, you know, North Korea is basically saying this satellite is, is going to be um, fully functioning very soon. And we're going to be able to fire our long range, our medium range missiles at the uh, at U.S. territories. Um, and you should be really concerned about that and perhaps uh, back off and, um, you know, stop your aggressive uh, what what Pyongyang would call uh, the American aggressive stance uh, towards it. And what's been the reaction uh, in South Korea and internationally as well? And do you think there could be any chance that offensive action might be taken on this satellite? Well, as you said, President Yoon is in the UK at the moment, but South Korea reacted uh, by partially suspending this um, inter-Korean military agreement uh, that was signed uh, with North Korea in 2018, if you remember uh, 2018, that was the year when you had uh, US President Donald Trump and uh, former South Korean President Moon Jae-in. They were having lots of summitry, uh, they were having lots of summits uh, with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un making lots of agreements. And one of these agreements was this uh, military agreement that they, uh, they came up with a few kind of like buffer zones uh, along the inter-Korean border where they would withdraw guard posts and, um, you know, you couldn't conduct live fire exercises in the, in these zones, for example. Uh, North Korea has violated that agreement on a number of occasions since then, and South Korea uh, has basically, uh, for a few months now, uh, said that it's had enough of, of North Korea's 
activities and now has uh, taken the opportunity, I think, to to um, partially suspend that agreement in response. Um, South Korea is also going to be launching its own satellite uh, later this month. So, you know, you can you can really see that a lot of what happens on the peninsula, uh, there's a lot of one-upsmanship one going on. And each side really has to demonstrate to the other side that they're, uh, you know, military powerful, um, militarily powerful, and that if you mess with us, then uh, it's going to end very badly for you. James Fretwell in Seoul, thank you very much. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio. 20 months into Russia's illegal invasion, Ukrainians are facing the bleakness of a second winter under fire and under-resourced. Jan Eglund is the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council and recently returned from a trip to Ukraine. I spoke to him earlier and began by asking him about what life is like for ordinary Ukrainians at the moment. It's still very, very grave, but of course it varies where you are in the country. I traveled 4,000 kilometers by rail and by car through the south, where I was, among other places, in Kherson, which is uh, the, the provincial capital that was taken by the Russians, then retaken and is now in the very front lines. Then I went to the east, uh, Dnipro and uh, Kharkiv and uh, villages all the way over to to the front lines, even in Donetsk, and then Kiev and out uh, and and uh, visit Poland and Moldova. It's it risks now of being a protracted, horrific conflict where millions are really in crossfire on both sides of this endless front line uh, ac- across the east and the south of Ukraine. And in terms of the basics for life, uh, clean water, food, heating, what's the situation for that going into this second winter of war? It's very fragile and it's and it's very bad, really. Of course, in big cities like Kiev and uh, and Odessa and Dnipro, uh, it's better. When I was there at the start of last winter, there was no electricity. It was bombed. There was problems with water, etc. Even in the bigger cities, but on the frontline communities, and there are millions there. And also in the Russian-controlled areas where we have no real access, situation is very, very dire. I wasn't in in villages where nearly all buildings were either destroyed or damaged, and still there were, you know, freezing pensioners there who had their uh, roofs were gone. The uh, there were holes in their roofs and in their walls. They refused to leave. We are giving them emergency relief. We're repairing the houses, but it's it's really very, very dire. And how challenging is distributing the humanitarian aid, which many countries around the world are donating? How difficult is it to get it to all parts of Ukraine? In many places, it does reach millions. But again, in, I mean, in Kherson, we saw how insecure everything is. Just half an hour after we 
left the city after having met the authorities and seen the bomb shelters which NRC, my organization, has has furnished and provided supplies for, there was an attack on the place where we were. Uh, several civilians died, uh, many wounded, including a, a two-year-old uh, infant, uh, no, a child. How can you provide any sustainable supplies to the tens of thousands of elderly people who live there. Uh, and in the Russian controlled areas where we were thrown out by the then uh, local authorities after the first war in 2014, we were there for a year, then we were thrown out. There the situation is also very dire. Millions live under Russian rule in Ukraine and there is very little international aid reaching them. And have you noticed any drop-off in support with the breakout of war between Israel and Hamas? Much less attention to Ukraine now. Uh, of course, all, all eyes are in, are in Gaza. Of course, Ukraine had a lot of attention and has been generously funded by many donors, including the UK. The Ukrainians are now afraid that it will be tougher in in next year and 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 the years beyond but i must say i'm more nervous for countries like sudan and somalia and the sahel where we have horrific wars that get zero attention at the moment i i've never in my 40 years as an aid worker seen such a gap between absolute abject needs and on the other hand available resources for humanitarian relief. And just stepping back as an organisation, looking across the world at the moment, I know you touched on it uh, a moment ago, but what will the priorities be for the Norwegian Refugee Council in 2024? It is to reach those in the worst needs in the most neglected places with the relief that they deserve. Uh, I, uh, after Ukraine, I went to Cairo, where we are working for Sudan and for Gaza both. We uh, had uh, a number of our Sudanese civil society partners there in Cairo to consult. And they tell of needs beyond belief. And there is no real funding for the work in Sudan. We are not able to be in Darfur with the ethnic cleansing. We're not able to be in Khartoum, a very large city, which where there has been crossfire and, and destruction of one part of the city after the other, and people are still trapped there. So, uh, so uh, we're not giving up next year. We are going to fight, to struggle to get to everybody and we then rely on the donor world to be there with us even though we hear that many countries have reduced funding so has the united kingdom unfortunately in, in recent years we need all nations to step up to this generational challenge which is to feed hundreds of millions of people in the coming years jan egland thank you you're listening to the briefing on monocle radio It was one of the seminal moments of the 20th century. U.S. President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, 60 years ago on November 22, 1963. 
Keeping Kennedy's memory alive and commemorating today's anniversary is the JFK Presidential Library and Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Monocle's Chris Chermack visited the museum and spoke with its director, Alan Price. I'm only about six months old when Kennedy is assassinated, and it is possible that I will be the last director of the JFK Library who was at all alive during Kennedy's lifetime. And so I don't know which is the first story I heard about it, but one that stands out in my mind since I've been here is a woman came to visit the library. She was from Dallas, and it was such a scarring memory for her that she broke down in tears when she entered our library, just reliving that moment. And it just reminds me how powerful that was in the minds and memories of the public at that time. And people do not forget where they were at that time. Talk to me a little about the museum's approach to that. There is this very moving passageway, which I walked through when I was there as well, with the sort of original footage of the assassination, also this moving, you know, announcement from newscaster Walter Cronkite about that moment. You mentioned it there with people coming in. Just tell me a little more about kind of what people's reactions are walking through that that passageway, reliving that memory or seeing it for the first time. Well, it's an interesting bit of our history at the museum that when the museum first opened, very early on, there was an exhibit about the assassination. And it was perhaps too close to that time and too early in the museum visiting experience, but people couldn't take it. So they would leave the museum after 15 minutes just crying and upset. So the museum had to be redesigned. And the passage that you went through is the way it was redesigned. So first you spend time getting to know young Kennedy, Kennedy on the campaign trail, Kennedy the president, and then there is that hallway where you see the original footage and Walter Cronkite. And so while we may have 14 presidential libraries and museums, we are the one that is also a memorial to a fallen president. And I think people enter our space differently than they do other presidential libraries. The way you talk about this broad impact, my generation, I would say, is known as the 9-11 generation, you know, for the, the kind of impact that 9-11 had on our thinking. I wonder if you could talk a little more about what impact you feel the Kennedy era and his assassination had on the generation of that time. How did it shape their, their enduring thinking? I would point first to the many people who served in the Peace Corps and how they joined the Peace Corps because of President Kennedy's words and creating that federal agency and really devoted their lives to public service in some way, even coming out of the Peace Corps. So that's, that's one. I was also going to say, and this just happened a, a few weeks ago, where one of our, our staff educators was teaching a middle school group and I witnessed one of the young women asking, I don't understand when the president is assassinated, 
why doesn't the president's daughter become president? And that became a wonderful moment for a civics lesson about how the American democracy works. And so if there are ways that we can use this as a convening space to advance the causes of environmental sustainability, for example, or civic understanding and promoting civic discourse and dialogue, we want to be able to do those things, not just because Kennedy would have done it, but because this is what society needs us to do in this moment. After JFK, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories, uh, you know, about what happened, about his assassination. Obviously, we live in a time of misinformation, conspiracy theories today. I just wonder what your take is on that, kind of the role of conspiracy theories, the enduring questions, debates about JFK. How, how did that shape his legacy and kind of have an impact on people? Certainly, we are a lightning rod for conspiracy theories. <laughs> and, and people come in on a regular basis with their own spin on what really happened on November 22nd, 1963, and, and the events that followed. I think, as an extension of the National Archives and Records Administration, our role as providing the original documents, the original artifacts for people to engage with, I think that is, if there is any antidote to conspiracies, that is it. We don't need to make up stories. Here are the records. Here are the facts. And we tend not to put a narrative on it, but to simply make them available for people. And I hope the truth will out, as they say. And finally, how, how will you and the museum be marking the anniversary itself? Well, we have a, a great number of events planned. We will have three musical performances with local musicians. We're going to put out memorial books in the lobby entrance and uh, allow people to enter their own reflections about President Kennedy and his legacy and whatever they wish to enter there. Many people add to the condolences. I mean, the amount of condolence mail we keep in our records is extraordinary. I think that it's an opportunity for people to simply come and be in the building and be part of that commemoration. I think it'll be a somber moment, but it'll be a powerful moment. That was Alan Price of the JFK Presidential Library and Museum speaking to Monocle's Chris Chermack, a museum I visited last year and can highly recommend. It's a beautiful building right on the water in Boston with some fascinating exhibits. Well, that is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. <laughs>